Today, I sit down with Ray, a young artist and intern at Wizards of the Coast. We discuss how she got into that position, what it's like learning from artists at the company, as well as discussing world building in the game Dungeons and Dragons itself. All that and more today on Rule for Insight. This is totally not like a take two, right? I totally no. remembered to hit the record button before. Absolutely. Yeah. The magic of video editing. You go by Ray on the internet? Yes, I do. So, uh, how are you doing? We've already asked <laughs> this, but how are you doing in the past I'm four minutes? I'm doing good. <laughs> Still doing great. Awesome. Good to know. So, let's just get the introduction out of the way. You DM you intern yeah. for Wizard of the Coast, you do art, fantasy style, and you just do general work in fantasy. Is that all correct? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And exactly the kind of thing we're looking for on this show. So let's just start right out the gate. When you hear that someone is interning at Wizards of the Coast, that's really cool. For a lot of D&D nerds, that is the dream. So can you walk us through what that's like, especially during the pandemic? So we're not on location right now because of the pandemic. We're remote. So it's just a lot of Zoom calls of meetings. So it's not as hands-on and interactive as it would usually be. So you mostly just observe what they're doing as opposed to like working with them directly? Yep. Don't talk a lot. I just kind of watch their process and absorb and spoke when spoken to. But when I do get to speak... <laughs> It's kind of nerve-wracking, but still really great. Yeah, I mean, you're working with people who are higher up in their concept art department, or they're just their art department in general. Is it nerve-wracking working with those people? I mean, you watch their art, look at their art when you're playing the game. I mean, that's a big deal. Oh, yeah, and I'm just, I'm youngest person in the room. I'm insanely young compared to everybody in there, so these professionals and these people that have had so many more years to develop their skills than me is just, it's kind of intimidating. <laughs> Out of curiosity, I mean, you are really young to be interning at this company, but I mean, number one, it shows that you have some merits. So can you uh, show us or tell us how you got into this position? Oh, so they do summer college internships every year and you must like, haven't graduated by summer. So, you know, you need to be continuing your education and they send out the applications and pretty much anybody can apply. I was recommended through one of my professors that has previously worked with them. So you told me about him in between my mess up recording. Could you tell us more about him on the air? What's he like? What was it? What's it like learning from him and what work has he done for Wizards of the Coast? He has done concept art for some web pages before for some Egyptian gods that were added to the game at one point. So kind of a uh, spin-off. And he worked he works directly with the founders who now have their own company. So he no longer works directly with Wizards of the Coast, the company, but the people who originally made it. So when you're at Wizards of the Coast, you're often observing their uh, concept artwork. Can you 
walk us through the process of making concept art? Because often we see the finished product, whether it be posted on social media or on ArtStation. Is that representative of what it's like behind the scenes? Yeah, concept art looks beautiful, finished paintings. That's not how they start. You always start with a sketch. And depending on the artist, sometimes it can be so hard to tell what the sketch is actually of. And then slowly you see them develop with black and white tonal drawings and then get critique and then continue on colors and get more critique. And there's so many phases and layers to that actual finished concept art that you see on screen. So when Wizards of the Coast sends down the word, hey, we want you to make this, how specific are they? Because the point of the concept art, as far as I know, is to develop the concept for a look, whether it be Tiamat or just your basic orc. How much oversight do the higher-ups have and how much freedom do artists have when they're doing the concepts? So a lot of work is done in collaboration. And while you may start with something fairly specific, with critiques and as that concept develops over time, pretty much everything like changes, not necessarily everything about the picture, but it never stays the exact same as when you first start. It's constantly evolving. What do you find changes the most? Is it the look of the image? I've seen when I'm just looking through work in progresses, even the poses change. Yeah. What is the most common thing that people will ask to be altered? Uh, poses and particular features, because a lot of the times, even with professional artists, we all have our anatomy blind spots, just parts of anatomy that we tend to tweak a little bit. So it's usually correcting proportions or, hey, maybe this nose would look better. Or maybe this hairstyle would look better to convey their personality. You know, do you want it to look powerful or weak and what colors go along with that? Doing concept art for them, I mean, does it look like an intensive process? It's a lot of hard work, but once again, you work a lot with teams. So you're not doing all of this by yourself. Even though you see art that all looks similar or the same, it's not done by one person. It's usually a lot of people working together, adding their own style into it to make this one uh, collage of this beautiful finished product. When people are working in the team, a lot of individuals have this kind of friction, especially in the medium of art. Everyone has a different style. So when you're working with these teams, I mean, have you worked with an ARC team before as opposed to just individually? No, I haven't before. I've worked on like group projects, but that's nothing comparable to an actual company. Mm. <laughs> What would you say the big difference is? Would you say that's more difficult to work with other people as opposed to just on your own? I personally like to work alone. While I love working with people, sometimes it can be hard if without communication to convey things properly, which can make things frustrating. So it really depends on the chemistry of the people I'm working with. Awesome. That totally makes sense. Because when you're working in those group projects, communication is always key. Uh, we'll just end off this section with a bit of advice. I mean, do you have any advice for anyone who wants to work in the medium of art? Um, practice, practice, practice. People say that art is a talent, but it's not. Nobody starts off being good at art. It takes time. It's hard work. It's not talent.
All right, so D&D. We both DM campaigns. Do you DM in in-person campaign or do you DM online? I DM in person. A couple How of my players your... join in online, but it's mostly in person. How big is your group? Uh, six players as of Dang. right now. I work with five, and that's already a massive pain in the butt. Yeah. <laughs> so what's it like balancing around six people? A lot of DMs run with like three or four. It's interest longer sessions. You need to be prepared for longer sessions to let everybody do their thing and actually get through combat and all of that because it's a lot of turns to get through and role playing a lot of people have to talk <laughs> so could you give us the pitch of your campaign i had the guy last time he also dms a sci-fi so i'm curious could you give us the pitch what's the basic premise okay so it's a homebrew campaign the world is eris and uh none get of out of here is. it's called eris yeah. what's the spelling yeah uh e-r-r-i-s you're two letters off from the exact name of my homebrew setting. Mine is also Eris. I'm not no kidding. A-E-R-I-S. No, that is awesome. Great minds think alike. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's certainly true. Okay. Carry on with the pitch. But um, I have a big part of campaign. It has a lot to do with the Pantheon. And I have a lot of my own homebrew gods and goddesses. And so the main conflict right now is with the goddess of disease and famine, who is currently going on a rampage and just killing, well, not killing off. She doesn't have the power to kill, but just making people sickly, crops aren't growing, and the god of death is currently nowhere to be found. And so nobody's dying. And so currently my players need to try and find the god of death. So when you're escalating the conflict, I mean, players are right now dealing with gods, What's their level right now? Oh, uh, level 14. Dang, they're getting up there. Mine are also level 14, coincidentally, yeah. once again. But when you're talking about escalating conflict in campaigns, I mean, a lot of DMs, including myself, have problems with escalation. What's your advice for making the threats feel natural while also threatening to the players? Like, how do you go from bandit to Tiamat? So, that's such a hard question. So, the whole idea is that the big, the BBEG is going to do whatever they're going to do, no matter what your players are doing. So, eventually, no matter, you know, what adventure they went on or how sidetracked they wanted to get, it, it's impossible for them to not notice what's happening around them. And if they wait long enough, especially with uh, this situation of people getting sickly, food not growing, it affects them too. So you start to not, it's getting harder to survive. So you kind of need to, oh, my like chase them up a three, chase them up a tree. Yeah. Chase them up a tree. Cause they need to deal with this problem. They can't just let it go. Even though they're just lowly adventurers, this problem isn't going to solve itself. Yes. And there's a lot more to it than that, but I cannot give more without spoilers. And I'm not sure if one of my players would listen to this or not. Exactly. I'm always so terrified of that. So when you're talking about creating a pantheon, where did you start? A lot of DMs, when they're world building, don't know where to start. So where did you start with yours? Um, I also don't have a starting point. I usually just go through ideas and get lost in daydreaming until something hits me and I'm like, yes, 
that's it. That's what I like. Yeah, that totally makes sense because my homebrew world, all of Eris just started with two political NPCs, like a queen and like a political Machiavellian manipulator. And then it just grew around them. What was that idea that just hooked you in and made you start? It was the idea of a lot of campaigns I listen to and see political intrigue, a lot of monsters and everything like that. And I was like, I want to go something bigger. I want my characters to actually interact and form bonds with the gods that they serve. And that concept is kind of what I used as a springboard for it all. Of all the NPCs or gods that you've created, do you have a favorite? I know we're not supposed to have a favorite, but we have a favorite. I have have two favorites and one favorite I can't talk about. But uh, for out of the gods, the god of death is my favorite out of the pantheon I've created. Uh, He has like feathers that start at his head as the feathers slowly turn to hair. And he has like these giant raven wings and a scythe. And I think his design is just really neat. (laughs) That's awesome. Do you make art for these characters? Because you're an artist. Yes. And you're much more talented than I am. Oh, well, thank you. I'm flattered. I've been doing it for a long time. Fair. But I do do have art of most of them. Uh, Not a lot of NPCs as much of the gods, although I'm working on my favorite NPC is actually a tabaxi merchant based off of my cat. (laughs) I'm working on art for her. And I'm definitely fond of all my players' interactions with her. So when you're taking inspiration to create NPCs, I mean, you just mentioned you took inspiration from just your household cat. Yeah. Do you take inspiration from any other sources when you're creating these deities or NPCs or worlds? Sometimes with the NPCs, I'm like, oh, I know I'm never going to get the chance to play all these characters, so I'll make them into an NPC and play them anyways. So you use your unused player characters. Are you a forever DM? Oh, it's looking like that. Except no. for some one shots. One of my players, uh, Olivia, she does one shots and she might do a campaign in the future. So fingers crossed. When you're working through player choice, I mean, right now they're going through a very heavy conflict and it's imperative that they make choices, decisive choices, so that things don't turn south and everyone starves to death because of a plague goddess, right? <laughs> so when you're dealing with player choice, how do you balance having the story move forward while also retaining players' ability to choose throughout their campaign? Oh, you know, I don't have that down to the science yet. Sometimes I try something that works and sometimes it doesn't session for session. It's hard to balance things. Even though it might suck... Uh, do you have a session, like a ground zero, things did not work out session that just went wrong? And what did you learn from it? Oh, uh, that I really need to get better at balancing encounters. Because it's always something I struggled with. And I almost TPK'd the party one time. And I was like, I'm the DM. I can control this. So I'm just going to say, never mind. <laughs> Not completely, but adjust it a bit. What was the monster that you threw at them? It was a homebrew monster, plus a couple elementals. Was so it? So for the level that they were at, and with the amount of HP and everything, I was like, yeah, they can take this, right? And then I was like, no, apparently they can't. Because, it's a lot uh, of math. Yeah, it's a lot of math. And also, 
they used up a lot of their spells uh, with other things earlier, which really didn't help. So as I saw them do that, knowing this was probably approaching, I was like, no, no, wait, stop. No, I one time threw, so just recently they had wrapped up their major threat and they were on top of the world. They were feeling great. And then I threw three dragons at them and... (gasps) I, three dragons? Yeah, three dragons. And it it made them a lot more humble, but holy crap. I mean, I didn't realize how zero to a hundred the campaign was going, because that by that point they had killed the Herald of a God. Not a god, but you know, you're close yeah, you're yeah. getting there. And unfortunately, when you go from that to anything else, it's really hard to make that anything else threatening. So three dragons yeah. of us. Oh wow, were they adolescent, elder? Like how how bad? <laughs> they oh boy, uh, our druid was one death save from oh! gone, gone, gone. Oh, no. And it was it was a lot. It was a lot. And then you saw you attended one of my games where I yeah. dropped one of those dragons, and it was just one, and it still was way too much. Yeah, no, I, like, was listening to you narrate the combat. I was like, oh, I would not want to be a player right now. (laughs) Do you think those encounters are important to, like, humble players or to give them perspective on what's going on in the world? Is it important for players to lose? Yes, because while by the end of the campaign, your players are basically, like, demigods, they need to remember that they're also just normal people in this world, in the world that we've been creating. It's really hard sometimes, especially when players get really powerful, to retain that kind of respect for normal authority figures in the world. Do you work with king, noble kind of people? I know that they're working directly with gods, but how do you balance that as opposed to normal authority figures like guards in a city? Oh, there is. I don't work with uh i don't have a lot of political intrigue in my particular campaign while in one continent corin they work with the leaders but it's more of like not a monarchy so i guess that's the closest but i'm pretty lucky to where uh none of my players really chose the dark brooding i hate authority type character (laughs) so that's definitely made things easier that's great but when you're thinking about we just mentioned the dark brooding terrible i hate authority type character not necessarily terrible it can work yeah yeah i mean there's a lot of characters in the critical role that are that dark brooding i hate authority but they make it work personally though do you have least favorite character archetypes do you have any nitpicks um my least favorite I don't think this is particularly an archetype, but it's the character that's like, oh, I'm joining you begrudgingly, but I'm also going to betray you at the drop of a hat. Yeah. Why that's, make a character that's going to go against the It's the hardest to work with. It's the hardest to work with. Do you have any DM nitpicks, like pet peeves, things that your players do? Not necessarily things that are like terrible, but things that just irk you personally? Oh, I'll feel so mean. Uh, it's a safe when- space. When you get to, <laughs> when you get to a certain level, if a player isn't familiar with their spells yet that they've yes. been using for sessions upon yep. sessions, and I'm like, you should know what this spell does. Yep. Just or, recently. Okay, okay. 
so this one of my players i love her to death she's a druid but we did this one uh we were lower level level 10 but she was just using poison spray the whole time and not like a single time use wild shape or like anything and i was like please you're a druid come on did she just not know or did no, she just not want to? No, older and she just didn't use it. Like, please. You're going to die. Wild Shape is like, a druid can become a pretty ridiculous tank with smart exactly. use of Wild Shape. So, back to D&D world building. Past gods, you mentioned that you made continents, kingdoms. Yeah. Which one did you make first? The gods or that? And which one do you think was easier? Uh, I created the continents first, but there's so much that goes into a continent. There's the countries, and there's the cities in those countries, and all the people in there. While gods are themselves, and while they over-encompass and oversee a lot of things, it's much easier because there's almost not as many details. Right. So when you're building out a world, is it easier to make the gods first or is that just irrelevant do you think that you should just put pen to paper get something down there i like having a basic idea of my world so that then when i create the gods i'd be like okay this continent would probably worship this god or you know this worshiping this guy would probably be banned in this place you know and kind of place them where they belong on the map because having them in there and having the gods exist while you're world building, it allows you to create cultures based on them and create cultures that are counteractive to them so exactly. that you can build out the world easier. That yeah. makes sense. And what countries might have tension because of those things. So it's easier to figure out where conflict might, conflict might be had, especially if players are from different parts of the map. And if they would inherently maybe have a prejudice against another player being of the campaign because of such details. How do you feel about party tension? I've never had, well, I mean, I have, but it wasn't great. I've never had a tense party where one player has a preconceived hatred of another, like a paladin versus a necromancer. Do you have that kind of thing in your party? Uh, not particularly there are two players that are siblings in the world and that were kind of loners like assassins and stuff like that and kind of were begrudging to work with the group at first and so they kind of butted heads with people a bit but beyond that I'm pretty lucky to have players that work well with each other and they sense if in real life maybe the role play is getting a bit too intense or boundary pushing to back off a bit despite characters. Yeah, because those boundaries are really important. Exactly. It's easy to get really into a character, but you still need to be aware of the person who's playing them. So when you're role-playing out characters, which NPC or god do you like playing the most as a DM? Again, not supposed to have favorites, but we totally do. (gasps) Okay, this isn't even an NPC in my world current this is for a one shot but i made her and fell in love with her and it's this little goblin artificial merchant who wields like a rifle like her size like as tall as her and she's just amazing and my absolute favorite ever <laughs> that is awesome when you're building out characters beyond just voices what aspects of them do you focus on for first is it quirks or is it looks because you're an artist 
it's it's looks because I'm an artist. I'm so I think about like general personality, but a lot of it comes through as I'm doing the sketches and developing. I might have the idea for like a drow rogue that they meet along the way, but as I'm sketching out what I think they look like, they might become like a paladin or a druid because the way I'm designing them just it feels better. It feels right. Is class really important when you're building out NPCs? Rogue, paladin. Um, They work a lot with NPCs, so I like to have it in the back of my head in case they decide to work with the NPC in, like, battle, or they come along for a few episodes. Sessions, not episodes. Do you have any... I call them episodes, too, by the way. It happens. Okay. (laughs) Do you give your sessions funny names? Oh, sometimes it happens, like, if there's, like, one line that a player said or, like, scene that all of us just found hilarious, it'll forever be referred to by that one-liner or scene. But if it's a pretty boring episode, we're... <laughs> session, episode, I'm just gonna call it episodes, you know? Yeah, and, it's fine. No, it's like, uh, that was the episode. That Judgment-free zone here, okay? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I give mine all funny names. Because if I'm taking notes, how am I supposed to remember what happened? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. In my notes, I might give them names, but overall, my players don't necessarily know those names. I think I tell them if it's a super cool name, if I come up with something really neat. Yeah, or I'll be like, you know that stupid moment where you failed that check? Yeah, I named the session after you in my notes. (laughs) What is that moment? What is one of your favorite natural ones or just failed checks in general? So... Oh gosh, there's so many. <laughs> so one of my favorites was uh, my players were trying to stealth through a village at nighttime and where everybody was frozen. And there was this one creature that was trying to possess them to like break them free. And so my one player decides to while they're going to this library, try and get information to, like, get people out and everything. Instead of trying to find an open window or a locked door in the library, they break, they decide to break the window. And I'm like, okay, roll, roll for stealth to stealthily break a window. I'll give you a chance to be quiet. Did not work out at all. And, uh, like, half the party failed their, their saves for the spell, so half of them, like, got possessed. Oh no. Was it just an epic PvP battle royale insanity? Almost. Very close to it. Not quite, thankfully, thanks to uh, our warlock and druid. Just clutch. What's your clutch players? Who are the players that you find are also always just saving people's asses throughout the game? Oh, okay. Honestly... All of them are kind of bad at it. None of them. <laughs> oh, damn. No, no, they're not horrible. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I feel so mean right now. It's just no like... judgment. <laughs> like, they all take turns and they have their few brilliant moments, but there's not... We don't have a heroic type. They try, but the and heroic all type doesn't do. always succeed. Yeah. Their, their dice hate them. <laughs> oh, is it just bad luck syndrome? Uh, a fair amount of the time. 
So they'll role play this great moment and then they'll roll the dice and it's like, well, you made that great speech and build up, but sadly. No persuasion. No charisma. Yeah. That hurts. To end off this bit, what is the number one? I mean, it doesn't have to be the number one. That's going to be really hard. But do you have one piece of advice when you're building out a homebrew world that coincidentally has the exact same name as my homebrew world? What is your big piece of advice? When you're first beginning, don't try to plan out everything because you'll never start the campaign that way. Just get what you need and make sure that you're enjoying it. If you get too bogged down in the details and trying to know every little piece of information about every single city that they could possibly go to, it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be enjoyable. And that's the most important thing for you and your players. Great piece of advice. Awesome. So we're wrapping it up here. Before we go, do you have any personal projects, anything you want to announce? No, I don't have any big personal projects. Honestly, because I'm in college right now, I don't have time for that. But uh, I just make artwork when I can and like to show it off to people sometimes. (laughs) Totally awesome. Some of that artwork will be linked in the description somewhere i'll put it in there cool thank you but yeah all right so if you guys enjoyed this episode of roll for insight thank you so much for coming by the way thank you so much for having me of course please do leave a like if you want to see more content from me and you want to see more episodes of this podcast then hit follow on whatever podcast platform you're listening on or subscribe on youtube and finally if you're able leave a comment down below. In essence, like, comment, subscribe. I'll see you all next time. Farewell.